0: Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So today's talk is the second of two talks on the second of three talks on Dukkha uh, will conclude on Tuesday with a Dukkha Sutta. Uh, in this Sutta, the Maha Dukkha Khanda Sutta, the greater discourse on Dukkha, the Buddha relates Dukkha directly to the five clinging aggregates. So you've all heard me say, maybe Tom hasn't yet, um, that the Buddha describes Dukkha, something that is, again, widely misunderstood in modern Buddhism, in very simple terms. Dukkha or stress and suffering, Uh, birth is suffering, sickness is suffering, aging is suffering, death is suffering or stressful. Not getting what is desired is stressful, getting what is undesired is stressful. And then he would always conclude that by saying, in short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. The five clinging aggregates are Dukkha. The five clinging aggregates are what we think we are, but it has nothing to do with what we really are. And through the Dhamma, we gain an understanding of how to disentangle or cut these, these clinging attributes at their root. And in this sutta, the Buddha teaches that last part of his, his description of Dukkha directly. The Greater Discourse on Dukkha On one occasion, the Buddha was staying at Savati in Jita's Grove, Anathapandika's monastery. Early in the morning, a group of disciples adjusted their robes and carrying their bowls left for savati for alms. Everybody knows what alms are, don't you? It's the the local sangha going out into the community, receiving a bowl of food and sometimes clothing or even other goods in exchange for a brief teaching. So it was an equal exchange. The, uh, The people in the village, local town, understood that equal exchange, that they were receiving something at least as valuable as the bowl of rice that they were handing over for that. You couldn't do that today. I tried it a few times, knocked on some doors with a bowl, and I just got arrested. They quickly realized that it was too early for alms and decided to visit a group of wanderers from another sect. They exchanged courteous greetings and sat to one side. The wanderers from the other sects questioned the group from the Buddha Sangha. Friends, Gautama, the contemplative, describes understanding sensuality, as we do. Gautama describes understanding forms, as we do. Gotama describes understanding feelings, as we do. Friends, what is the difference, the distinguishing factor between his teaching and ours? The Buddha's disciples... Sorry... The Buddha's disciples, neither neither delighted nor disapproving of these words, decided to seek out their teacher to hear his words. They went for alms and then returned to the Buddha. They bowed to their teacher and sat to one side and told him what the wanderers of the other sects said. So I want to stop there and just explain something that I understood after a while of reading the sutras. To some, that would seem like extraneous background information. Let's get to the meat. What's the Buddha teaching? But it's, under, it's very important to understand, none of these people were extraordinary human beings. They were all, including Siddhartha Gautama, ordinary human beings, ex- extraordinary in what they accomplished, but ordinary human beings. And hearing the backstory brings a humanness to this. So here's a group of seekers going out looking for support, for alms. Not, it's not time for that, so they they interact with other seekers and because of that human interaction are able to now through what's going to follow teach them a bit of the dhamma too as well as teaching the community so the, the backstory is often as important as the as the actual sutta our teachers know that Ram Ram and jen are particularly good at bringing in all four of our teachers are particularly good about bringing out the backstory. The Buddha replied, friends, when wanderers of other sects say this, you should ask, what is the allure, the drawback, and the release with regard to sensuality? That last is, is important, the release. What is the allure, the drawback, and the release with regards to forms? What is the allure, the drawback, and the release with regards to feelings? When asked, these wanderers of other sex will be in trouble and not be able to provide a reasonable answer. In other words, like today, in fact, this question came up on a Thursday class, and I thought of Alice when I was reviewing this again for today's class. I think it was Alice, Tom, who was talking about kind of getting caught up in her feelings and thoughts during jhana meditation. And this is what we do with that when we are caught up in it. Friends in this world of fabricated divas, maras, and brahmas, of of contemplatives and brahmins, Royalty and commoners, I do not see anyone who can answer these questions aside from myself, my disciples, or someone who learned my Dhamma from a skillful disciple. So he's also saying that all of the common beliefs of his time that resolve in these magical and mystical realms of marriages and devas, elevating common priests, Brahmas, above the, lo- the level of humanity and even treating Brahmins, local priests, as something special. The Buddha never thought him, taught him, thought, presented himself as anything special other than a guy that figured it out. So, in order to learn the Dhamma, he also concludes by learning from a skillful disciple. The next section is, is subtitled, Understanding the Allure, the Drawback, and the Release of Clinging to Sensuality. So, the five clinging aggregates are all resolved around the, the notion of clinging to sensuality, and you'll see that as this unfolds. The Buddha continues. Now, what is the allure of sensuality? Well, there are five clinging fabrications of sensuality. Excuse me. And these five clinging fabrications of sensuality, excuse me, relate directly to our physical senses, which makes sense. It's our it's coming in contact with the world that a mind rooted in fabrication becomes ensnared in the sensuality of the moment. It, it arouses a feeling and a thought attached to that feeling of individual presence, but it's that individual presence that's rooted in the fabricated view of self that's responding to the sensuality of coming in contact with with a human body and its senses. Form is interpreted by the eyes as agreeable, pleasing, endearing, and enticing. Sounds interpreted by the ears as agreeable, pleasing, endearing, and enticing. Aromas interpreted by the nose as agreeable, pleasing, endearing, and enticing. Flavors interpreted by the tongue as agreeable, pleasing, enduring, and enticing. And tactile sensations interpreted by the body as agreeable, pleasing, endearing, and entertaining. All of those adjectives applied to what we're coming in contact with are attachment, isn't it? I'm uh, becoming endeared with something. Endeared with a, uh, a temporary aspect of phenomena arising is another way of saying, I'm clinging to it. I want more of it. It's instilling a sensual desire simply by contact. And it's because of that contact rooted in a mind that itself is rooted in fabrication of four noble truths that clinging occurs. And these five clinging aggregates then coalesce into what we call a human being when in fact it's all just one fabricated mass of form and feelings attached to thoughts and perceptions and fabrications. Something strange just walked, walked by my window, but I can't see what it was. The Buddha continues, Friends, Whatever pleasure or happiness that depends on establishing through any of these five senses is the distracting allure of sensuality. So if we're trying to figure all this out, what the Buddha is describing is what's occurring in our life in this moment. And if we are distracted by wanting more or less of what's occurring, if we're taking what's occurring in any way personal, we know that we're stuck in the five clinging aggregates. And to some that are in, in the... Maybe the beginning stages of coming to grips of understanding this, you may not even have a, uh, a benchmark or a landmark of where this is going. But that's where the Dhamma is so important, where it has to be practiced. So you can not understand by my words or even the Buddha's words, but to understand through your own direct experience what the Buddha's teaching now from 2,600 years ago. This whole thing can only be understood from direct experience. And direct experience means through a mind united in its body through jhana meditation. So now, what is the drawback of sensuality, the Buddha asked. Here is an example. When one's occupation, whether accounting or plowing, whether trading goods or attending to cattle, whether an archer or attending a king, whatever one's occupation, they are subject to changing weather, to harassment by insects, to dying from thirst and hunger, And the whole mass of suffering, in other words, clinging to our position in some self-referential way, is the drawback of that, instead of just being whatever we find ourselves to be. This, This drawback of sensuality, this mass of stress and suffering, that is visible here and now, it's what's occurring in our life, has sensuality as its source and as its establishment. The source means where it arises from. The establishment means how we maintain it. Simply put, the drawback is sensuality. So the Buddha is describing almost our entire life experience, but he's simplifying the Dhamma to such an incredible level to saying all that we have to recognize. We don't have to get caught up in this and that, the here and the there. All that we have to recognize it is sensuality arising and clinging to that sensuality. He's so simplifying the Dhamma in this sutta. It's really remarkable. But it does take a basic understanding that I think we all have or are all quickly developing to understand how to apply these teachings. And, you know, I don't want to break this up right now, but if that is not something you agree with, please let's talk about it when we discuss this. Now. If a person gains little while striving and making effort, they will be sorrowful and regretful, meaning we'll take it personal. They will grieve and become distraught. Those are all emotions rooted in self referential, ignorant views. They'll think to themselves, All of my efforts have been useless and fruitless. And how many times have we applied that to ourselves? Things didn't work out the way we wanted, and we blamed ourselves, we're not good enough or the world isn't good enough, or the world doesn't understand me, or everything just sucks. That's all taking a self-referential view. It's all taking what's occurring personal. And how do we we get past the idea of putting a reasonable effort into the world that may or may not have a a meaning without being self-referential through right effort? And I'm not going to get into the definition of right effort. We talk enough about it. But right effort is something that is applied moment by moment. Right effort basically is maintaining the effort to integrate the Eightfold Path as our, as our point of view, maintaining that right view in each and every moment that occurs. This reaction is also a drawback of sensuality to this massive stress and suffering that is visible here and now and has sensuality as its source and its establishment. Simply put, again, the drawback of sensuality. If a person gains wealth while striving and making effort, they will experience distress protecting their wealth. How can I keep my wealth from kings and thieves? How will I protect my wealth from fire and floods? How will I protect my wealth from greedy herds? So again, the Buddha is saying it's not because in my life, while living in the framework of the Eightfold Path, I was able to to develop a a huge hut of coconuts, more so than my neighbors. If I don't take self-reference out of that, meaning I have more than everyone else, or worry that somebody's going to come in in the the dark of night and steal a couple of coconuts, if I'm just present in my life, then I'm good to go. But if I've acquired a lot or a little, and I'm clinging to that lot or a little, by no matter what means, fire might take it away, my my friends or heirs might steal it, kings might take might tax it out of me. Then I'm stuck in self-referential views and what I own, what I'm attached to, becomes the source of stress. Does everybody understand that? So money is not good or bad. Having a lot of money or little money is not good or bad. It's clinging to the situation and taking self-reference by it. Because once I establish myself as the richest guy in the block then I always have to protect that wealth because that's my identity in, in the world that I live in. But also, concurrently, when I establish an identity as the poorest, most miserable slob on the block, that's what I have to protect because I've attached myself to it. And that becomes a constant source of reaction and stress. Is that clear? Yes. And so this is, this is how, this, this is the simplicity of clinging to sensuality. The idea that I'm the richest guy in the block or the poorest guy in the block is a sensual feeling because of the thought, the the thought attached to the feeling of what that means to me. A thought attached to a feeling is is called an emotion for all intents and purposes. It's a judgment of what, what sensuality is making me feel. Even as they protect their wealth, kings and thieves make off with it, fire and floods destroy it, and greedy heirs make off with it. They then will be sorrowful and regretful. They will grieve and become distraught. What was once mine is gone. I just realized I'm putting this up in my face. You know. This drawback of sensuality, this mass of stress and suffering that is visible here and now, has sensuality as its source and its establishment. Simply put, the drawback is sensuality. It is preoccupation with sensuality as the reason, the source, the cause, that kings quarrel with kings. I'm got to go back to this and just say two things. Uh, the word preoccupation, is, if you read it, it's in parentheses. That's not from the text. I put that in there. Um, and you've heard me say often that the Buddha could have nearly as accurately described the problem with dukkha as the problem of preoccupation with sensuality as, as the problem. The preoccupation means we're distracted in this moment. Hence the need for jhana meditation to counteract the preoccupation or the distraction of, of dukkha in this moment. Uh, there's something else I was going to say and now the Buddha is relating this this idea of the five clinging aggregates clinging to sensuality he's really saying for example kings quarreling with kings it's the root of all human conflict and if you look at the root of all human conflict it is this and some might say well aren't most wars fought over religion or oh, many wars But isn't religion an idea that we're clinging to and we're justifying this? Or money or tin and whatever it might be. And it's by ending this conflict within our minds, a conflict wrought by by believing we're five clinging aggregates, that we end conflict in our minds. And once we end conflict in our minds, then humanity has a possibility to end conflict in the world. But it's the only way it's ever going to happen. So if we really, and you hear me say this often, the most loving thing I can do for myself and all other sentient beings is to take to the Dhamma and awaken. And this is what I'm referring to. If I really care about conflict in the world, and I do as a human being, we all do. And I believe every human being, unless you have a very deep and rare psychosis, you care about other human beings. But because we have conflict in our mind, we can't adequately and effectively address the conflict in the world. Even at subtle levels, we may be contributing to conflict, and there's many examples of that that I won't go into right now. But the the, the problem with that with that type of clinging is 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 the, the is the misguided belief that I should try and change the world. Before I've ended conflict in myself. And that becomes a monolith in front of us. The reason why I say that. And it, it's such an interesting thing to realize. That the Buddha left the palace grounds. He left great wealth and power and luxury. Not out of aversion for that. But because he wanted to find an answer. For the stress and suffering of human humanity. It was out of great compassion that the Buddha left that, that great wealth. But he didn't try to help another human being in a direct way until he awakened. And I'm not saying that it doesn't mean that until we awaken, we shouldn't help people and, and contribute to charities and hold the door open. for Do all the things that we do that are compassionate. That's not what I'm saying. But if we really care about other people, and I think we all do, we'll take to the Dhamma and we'll be much more effective in what we're doing. And we are all, by the way, and we've talked about this before, The the... Profound effect, even though it might be hard to see at times, that you are all having around your local community, meaning your family and friends and your workplace, just by simply practicing the Dhamma. And I think, and I'm sure each and every one of us has, have talked about that effect that we're having, and that's what I'm talking about. The less, the less self, self-referential we become, the less attached to these five clinging aggregates we become. The less conflict we have in our minds, and so the less conflict we're contributing to the world. Excuse me. The Buddha continues, not getting too late. So it is preoccupation with sensuality as the reason, the source, the cause that kings quarrel with kings, nobles quarrel with nobles, brahmins with brahmins, householders with householders. Parents with children, children with parents, children with siblings, and friends with friends. The whole world in conflict. When conflicted, excuse me. Listen to what the Buddha is saying here. Again, 2,600 years ago. What's changed? When conflicted, they will attack each other with fists or sticks or clubs or knives, and they incur extreme pain and death. There again is a drawback of sensuality, this massive stress and suffering that is visible here and now and has sensuality as its source and its establishment, simply put, the drawback of sensuality. Some people, my own students, have have, and some have actually stopped coming, and I understand it, because they're saying that all the Buddha's talking about is the most miserable aspects of human beings. He is. He is. He's teaching us in a direct way. Look what happens. He's teaching all of humanity. And not every one of us is like that. Not every one of us is going to attack another person with a knife or in other ways. But internally, we might. When we hate someone, even though we don't act out on it, it's the same. It it, it essentially has the same effect on ourselves and the world around us. And so, of course, the Buddha is not teaching that all of life is like this. But he's teaching us if we want to stop the conflict in our minds, we have to address this particular type of violence that arises in our minds. Is everybody clear on that? It's not an accusatory sutta in any way. He's just describing what happens in humanity in general. And this is how he, he observed this in his own life, just as we can observe it easily enough by just looking around without Without rose-covered gla- covered glasses, without the need to see everything in a positive way. That's just as hurtful as, as walking around with a completely negative attitude. I'll continue. It is preoccupation with sensuality as the reason, the source, the cause, that human beings wear armor and use swords. That's another uh, euphemism for covering ourselves in emotional armor, living in a, in a bubble of our own fear. Our own withdrawal. It's the same thing. Human beings wear armor and use swords, spears, and arrows. While charging in formation into battle with other human beings, with spears and arrows flying, with swords flashing, they are wounded, their heads cut off, ensuring extreme pain and death. So the Buddha is painting a pretty grim picture of ignorance, isn't he? Here again is a drawback of sensuality, this mass of stress and suffering that is visible here and now and has sensuality as its source and its establishment. Simply put, the drawback is sensuality. Friends, it is preoccupation with sensuality as the reason, the source, the cause that human beings take what is not theirs, including a pack of gum. It's not, it doesn't mean taking all the coconuts in the world. And there's another aspect of taking and reflecting all this is emotional stealing. Taking from others what they're not willing to give us emotionally. And there's that famous saying that in horrible relations that we take, especially in a 12-step community, it's used way too much, we take others as, as hostages. But that's what the Buddha's talking about. It's not just stealing a pack of gum or a pound of coconuts. It's, it's stealing from others emotionally. And we do that, we all know how, we do it with manipulation, but also withholding our own Presence from others. Human beings take what is not not theirs, ambush others, commit adultery, and when caught, kings have them tortured for their misdeeds. They are flogged and beat with clubs, their hands and feet cut off, their ears and noses too. They are subject to many indignities and deprivations. And by the way, some of us are thinking, well, that only occurred during the Buddhist time, this extreme type of torture. It's happened all over the world today, right now. Nothing's changed. Here again, this is a drawback of sensuality. This mass of stress and suffering that is visible here and now has sensuality as its source and its establishment. Simply put, the drawback is sensuality. Friends, again, it is preoccupation with sensuality as the reason, the source, the cause that human beings engage in bodily, verbal, and mental misconduct. Having lived their lives as such, upon death and the breakup of the body, there is only continued deprivation. And the Buddha, excuse me, the Buddha, the is not talking about continued deprivation. Past the physical death, he said, "You established it. Your life ended, and it was only a life of deprivation because of your own ignorance." It's not something that's continuing. If the Buddha, the Buddha never taught anything about. Future lies. he said. Dismiss it. He said it's, it's an aberration. It's a distraction. So understanding that, you can understand that sentence. If your mind is stuck in the idea that the the Buddha taught reincarnation and all the rest of the, uh, just to put it, maybe a slightly derogatory word about it, nonsense, then you ha- then you misinterpret that by thinking the Buddha's talking about future deprivation. He's just stating that your your life, the soul. Entire mass of your life was dukkha, was deprivation. Here again, this is the drawback of sensuality. This mass of stre- stress and suffering that is only continued deprivation as sensuality as its source and its establishment, simply put, the drawback in sensuality. And friends, and what friends is the release from sensuality? The subduing of passion for sensuality. That's a direct. Um, engagement of our minds, of our concentration. It's not something that happens because we're good Dhamma practitioners. There's, there's no merit in what we're doing, It's except in the fact that we're developing our own understanding. In other words, just because we're here today is not enough. We have to apply these teachings. And how do we apply the teachings? By simply doing, this came up a little bit on Thursday, by simply continuing with Dhamma practice, by doing what we're doing right here and right now. For the subduing of passion for sensuality The subduing of craving for sensuality, the abandonment of passion for sensuality, and the abandoning of craving for sensuality. Excuse me. This is the release from sensuality. So, this last relates to another subtopic that we talk about all the time, wise restraint. So, it is in the moment, as craving for and clinging to sensuality arises, that we practice the Dhamma. It's not something, and again, this this came up briefly on Thursday too, um, about getting just getting caught up in these things, especially in meditation, when, when things arise during meditation. When we in the moment, when we find that we're we're craving for and clinging to sensuality, that is where we practice the dhamma. There's not something wrong that we find ourselves there. In fact, it is it is the remarkableness of the dhamma that we're able to recognize it. And so rather than judge that moment as, as a failure of, of ourselves or a failure of our dhamma practice, we should be encouraged that now I can practice a dhamma. And in this moment, I take a breath, I unite my mind and my body, and I abandon directly whatever that, that uh, aspect of sensuality that is arising in this moment. And for most of us, in the next moment, it'll arise again. And in that next moment, we learn what we, we do what we learn in jhana meditation. Take a breath. You let our mind and our body. And it's by that continued practice of wise restraint that we achieve what the Buddha is getting to here, friends. I say to you, any contemplative or brahmins who do not understand sensuality as it truly is, who do not understand the allure as allure, who do not understand the drawback as drawback. In other words, you start overanalyzing all these things or applying external attributes like the devil made me do it. Thank you, Flip Wilson. Who do not understand the release from sensuality as release could only understand sensuality or arouse others in accordance with what they believe and what they practice. That means lead others towards that. It is impossible for them to understand sensuality as sensuality. But... Friends, I say to you, any contemplatives or Brahmins who do understand sensuality as it truly is, who understand the allure as allure, who understand the drawback as drawback, who understand the release from sensuality as release, would themselves understand understand sensuality and would rouse others in, other, in, in, that, in that understanding. In other words, they'd be able to, by their own example, lead others. And so the Buddha is also saying here, That no matter what your practice might have been, no matter what your beliefs might have been before you come to the Dhamma, if you take to the Dhamma and understand what he's saying, then you have have gone past those limitations and those distractions, and you are, what the the Buddha's words are, now a skillful disciple who can help others, who has ended conflict in their minds, or, or is at least beginning to, and can contribute to the ending of conflict in the world. I I cut that off a little bit, but I'll just continue where I left off. In accordance with what they believe and what they practice, it is now possible for them to understand sensuality as sensuality. The next section is understanding the allure, the drawback, and the release of clinging to form. Now, friends, what is the allure form? Suppose a young woman of 15 or 16 years old, neither tall or short, thin or plump, or too dark or too pale, Is this one her charm is greatest? Yes, great teacher. So now this, this is just a teaching on clinging to form. Then it follows that whatever pleasure and happiness that is dependent on clinging to that form, her present state is the allure. In other words, he's just talking about this young girl clinging to her young form and self-identifying it. So they, she's established her form as the allure. And what is the drawback of form? This very woman, now 80 or 90, or 100 years old, bent, needing a cane, trembling, miserable, gray-haired, perhaps even bald, wrinkled, (laughs) now ill, in pain, lying in her own filth. Later still one may see her as a corpse, rotting away, bloated, oozing, Later, still, one may see her course being picked out by crows and vultures, a heap of bones. What do you think? Has her earlier charm vanished and a drawback appeared? Well, it's only because of her clinging to that form as needing to be permanent and not allowing what the Buddha described as draw as dukkha, birth, sickness, aging, and death. <coughs> that distress and suffering of clinging to that form arose. Of course, as that young girl aged, there will be those natural occurrences of aging. But as long as you understand that as the, as the natural process, you won't take it personal and there'll be no reaction to it. Yes, great teacher is the answer. Well, this is the drawback of self-identifying with form. So whether we're a young woman or a young man of 14 or 15 or 16 or 18 or 25 feeling our oats or a 45 in the middle of our life or at 85 or 100 knowing that we're at the end of our life without any self-reference the experience is simply life as life occurs and then there's a brilliance and a meaning to being a young 15 year old or a middle-aged 45 year old or someone approaching death because it's, it's an experience of what it means to be a human being at 15, 45, and 100. That's all it means. And that's the brilliance of the Buddhist Dhamma. It teaches us what it means to be a human being without the need for it to be any different. Without the need for me at 65 to wish I could be like I was when I was 45. Or any of us to do the same thing. Or to me, now poor because of a year of lockdown maybe losing my restaurant if I had one, to take it personally. That will allow me to disengage from the emotion of the moment, but it certainly doesn't end the, the challenges of the moment, does it? But my mind will remain at peace. It's that fourth foundation of mindfulness that I'm talking about now. My mind, the quality of my mind will not be affected by what's occurring in the world. And this so this... Teaching again is just as relevant now as it was 2,600 years ago. And what is the release from identifying with form? The subduing of passion for form. The subduing of craving for form. The abandoning of passion for form. The abandoning of craving for form. This is the release from form. I just described that in practical ways. Clinging to me at 15 or aversion to me at 65 or 100. This is the release from form. Friends, I say to you that any contemplative or brahmin who do not understand form as it truly is, who do not understand the allure as allure, who do not understand the drawback as drawback, who do not understand the release from, from form as release, who could only understand or arouse others in accordance with what they believe and what they practice, it is impossible for them to understand form as form, but Friends, I say to you, any contemplatives or Brahmins who do understand form as it truly is, who who understand the allure as allure, who understand the drawback as drawback, who understand the release from sensuality as a release, would themselves understand, understand form and rouse others, lead others, in accordance with what they believe and what they practice. It is now possible for them to understand form as form. Uh, I'm going to end this. There's, the rest of this is, is the same process going through the rest of the five clinging aggregates. Uh, but that's, uh, I think, a long enough class, and honestly, it's a long enough time for me to be reading this morning. So I'm going to end the talk there. You can uh, listen, uh, read the rest of it if you haven't already. But it, it's basically the same thing. Is when we understand, when we don't understand, clinging to the when we don't understand the five clinging aggregates, we'll continue to cling to those aggregates. And when we do understand through the Dhamma, we'll abandon clinging to those aggregates and we will awaken or gain full human maturity. So that's my talk with today. for today. Uh, I'd like to hear what you have to say and I'm just going to start with Jen. Hi, John. Hi,
1: everybody. Good morning, Jen. Um, I have a question that I feel like um, it's just pressing. So I need to, I, I feel like this is the first time that I've ever recognized that two Dipsutas have exactly the same words in them and the same, um, I mean, the same exact words. So my question is, Are were these taught sequentially or what is it just that he's just using the again in a different application?
0: Uh, it's it's more the last again it's it's almost impossible to chronologically lay out the suttas. I mean it's some the, the, in some ways I can kind of get a, a hint that this was probably an earlier teaching or a later teaching, but it's almost impossible. So um, often the Buddha taught, I mean, we all know it's very repetitive Meaning the same, but he also taught situationally, meaning who was in front of him, what what what's arising in the group in front of him in the sangha, or just a a, a general teaching to those gathered, uh, and so the teaching would necessarily be very similar. Also remember that I've restored these suttas from many different sources, and so that the. the the languaging that is almost exactly the same is probably more of that, of the, the person doing the restoring than the okay. Buddha using exactly the same words. But he is teaching exactly the same wording as we right. go along. So that, that's where it is. So there, um, the uh, dependent origination of teaches Samuppada, that's, that's, the wording in that is very similar to, to dozens of other suttas, isn't it? And other suttas are like that, too. The, the recounting of the Eightfold Path of the Four Noble Truths is often repeated right. in other suttas where it's relevant. So, but it's a great question, Jen. Thank you.
1: I mean, it makes it makes total sense. I don't know why it was so surprising to me, but it was so surprising that I actually got distracted by it and was like, while we were talking, also looking at the previous sutta and, you know, comparing them because I was like, you know, just trying to and then, you know, of course, of course he would repeat himself. But,
0: yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's even a, I think it's a Dhammapada. I can't remember the number. I think it's toward middle 15, 16, 17, where the Buddha says it, that that, that repetition, where there's no Dhamma, there's no repetition. Where there's no repetition, there's no Dhamma. And it's also said that the Buddha gave about 84,000 teachings over his lifetime. Uh, 84,000 is, is one of those um new agey magical numbers. It simply means a lot. And if he did the math, he couldn't have given 84,000, but he did probably give it what, one teaching every day of his life. But um, I haven't read all the sutras that are in the Sutta Patakana. In this lifetime, I won't have enough. And I, in this lifetime, I'll, because in this lifetime, I won't have enough time. I'll never have enough time to, I didn't mean to imply that another lifetime I might finish it. But um, I truly believe that the 300 or so suttas that I've restored that are on the website are a, a, an overarching representation of what the Buddha taught. And the reason why I say that is because of how much repetition is in just those 300. There's probably another hundred or so that I have uh, put aside and read with the hopes that someday I would restore them. And honestly, I probably won't. that are all very similar and that's that's why i'm kind of in no rush to do so Mm -hmm. so i really feel that we have an an incredible uh representation of what the buddha actually taught and there is you know there's a good representation of that uh repetition in it that that i think is necessary yeah
1: thank you for teaching them right but right back to back and making me really really see it thank you
0: yeah, it really works well doing it this way, doesn't it? And last next Tuesday, sutta on the suit Sutta, you'll you'll see how it fits in and all this too. So, thanks, Jen. Thank you, Becky. Good to see you.
2: Okay, now I'm unmuted. Good morning.
0: Good morning.
2: I noticed the same thing, Jen, and I'm glad you asked that question because. I have to admit that I, in the beginning, I actually wondered if John forgot we already had this sutta.
0: <laughs> I could.
2: So now I'm very happy to know that that everything is on track. Yeah, you're
0: not you're not so concerned that your teacher is so adled to
2: teach,
0: teaching the same class day after every class. Sorry. So next yeah. Tuesday we're going to have the Mahadukka Kanda Sutta, the Greater. <laughs>
2: Being reminded of all the ways that we uh, harm, <clears throat> that we make ourselves feel terrible, is always good to come back to and realize. Yeah. Um, I realized while listening to this that there are there's a level that you know, you get to after this many years of practicing the Dharma where you can, you can recognize daily the little things that you're doing to yourself to make your day to day, moment to moment life, uh, miserable. And you can stop that, which is, which is wonderful and freeing. And you can, you can say, Oh, this feeling, here it is. I'm doing this to myself. I don't need to feel this way. This is not me, this is not mine. And you can get yeah. good enough at that that it just you your mind will just relax in that yeah. moment. Okay. And be okay. You'll be okay yeah. for that moment.
0: And you've had that experience.
2: Your day, your day will be better yeah. for that moment. <clears throat> then there's bigger things like getting old. That's very hard to let go of your, of your clinging to the fact that in your life, you used to have many years that you could think about in the future that you could plan for. And now you're like, Whoa! I better, I better do that soon because I don't have that much time. And that's harder. That's harder to let go of. That's harder, but because you can do it with the smaller things, you realize that if you just keep practicing and you just keep it, it kind of just gets in through osmosis, I'm not a scholar about this, but you just. It just gets better and better. So, right effort is the way to go. Wow. Thank you. Well, I'm not going to say anymore. I'm rambling.
0: Here. No, you're not. That was beautiful, <laughs> Becky. Your, your right effort is the way to go. I mean, that's that's what the Buddha teaches. And then he, you know, maybe we'll do a, a, that suit I'm thinking about. But he, he, right effort is what guides everything we do. And um, this this whole idea of not getting what you want and getting what you, you know, that whole, the whole notion of disappointment is interesting, at least interesting to me. Because for me to be disappointed in this moment, I have to take it personally. I have to want something to be different. And so, and something you said got me thinking about this, Becky, and I don't quite remember what it was, but. Um, oh, you're thinking about all the things that you, that you want to do and maybe don't have the time left to do it and there's two aspects of that one is related in the bahia Sutra. the most important thing in a human life is to awaken before you don't have that chance to so that that's the one thing that should be foremost on our minds um, rather than i only have three more skiing trips to aspen left unless i get get to it um i've never skied in aspen by the way and i don't regret that i haven't um so i'm i'm I almost used the word painfully, but it's not a painful thought. I'm well aware that I'm much closer to the end than the beginning. And it's true for every one of us. I mean every one of us might have just one breath left. Does it but as you're as you get older, obviously, you do have less, and you don't know how many they are. And I used to think about that too, about Jesus, so many things that I wanted to do. I got a hundred suits at all. Um, <laughs> And now, uh, because I don't think that way, because I think much more realistically, I think, about what's occurring right now and what can I do right now, that it it keeps my mind much more focused on that rather than even in the next moment thinking that, you know, just getting stuck in the idea of how am I going to do this or how am I going to do that in the future. It's just present. And so... And it's not to, to say that I don't think I'm going to have it tomorrow or even in next week, but I don't, like I say, I don't care about it. And it's not that I don't care about it. I'm no longer preoccupied with it. And, the, and this is, when I say that integrating the Eightfold Path is where all the freedom and liberation comes in my life, it's because of that. Because right, near, right now, nothing else needs to be different. Because it can't be different because this is my human life. It's the one that I'm charged to be mindful of. It's the one that I'm charged to be to be well concentrated in. It's the one, it's the life that I'm charged to be conflict free in this moment. And that's the only thing that I can do in this life. And the, beyond that, then I can just live my life. But before that, if I don't do the work, I'm not gonna live this life at all. And that, that really has brought incredible meaning and purpose to, to my life as it as it unfolds. And again, I don't like to talk about myself too often, and I, and I hope I don't, but maybe I do. Uh, but I think that was appropriate here. So thanks for listening to that. I'm just gonna go across my top row. Rom, how are you? Is that Ram? Yeah. <laughs> Ram.
3: Yep. It's Ram. <clears throat> um. Yeah. This. I'm glad you taught this series again on, on Dukkha because it's just so foundational. And when I look back, I realized that the majority of my confusion in the beginning was, was not seeing those distinctions of, of Dukkha.
1: Mm.
3: There is ordinary life which causes stuff, and then there is our our reaction to it, our our, our non-acceptance uh, of of what's going on, um, our, our discontent about what's going on. Yeah. And and then to see the the, the the real you know here we're we're being taught the real cause of that discontent. Yeah. And as you are getting your understanding um, that discontent just slips away um, and it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful feeling to go from from confusion to uh, and discontent to um, contentment and and acceptance yeah. uh, and that you know that's the, the art of, of the dharma. Um, and it's it is amazing how little of that of that teaching can be found outside of what we're doing here. Yeah, um,
0: I know, I really, I've never seen it.
3: Yeah, in the beginning, when when I was just starting to to uh, listen to you, uh, I would go back to the to the web and, and you know find chat rooms and do this and do that and and, and find YouTube videos and. Uh, there just wasn't any clarity there. Yeah. That it, just the first noble truth just wasn't understood. Yeah. And if you don't understand that, then everything else falls just falls apart. Yeah. There's no it's useless.
0: understanding. Yeah.
3: So thank you for doing this again.
0: Thank you, Ram. And that, again, you're you're talking about the necessity of remaining pure to the Dhamma, not trying to incorporate anything else into this, because then we'd lose that first noble truth. We lose that that focus of you know what are we doing here. So, thanks, Rob. Anthony, how are you this morning? Good. John. Where'd you go? You're moving on the screen.
4: Um, this was a great. This was a great talk. I'm I just going to make a very minor point, but uh, I noticed that you you included something that wasn't in the Buddhist teachings about how we can become attracted to things that are negative, like negative states of mind. Uh, because there are people so some, who are sort of locked in a pattern of thinking nobody has it worse than me. Yeah. And, and so, I, you know, that was a good good, fi- a good point on your part because the Buddha only talked about being attracted to things that are appealing, but you can be attracted to things that are very unappealing too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought that up. And,
0: and that's aversion. That's one of the three the three to five ones, greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. Right. Sorry to interrupt you.
4: No, that's okay. Great a great talk, and it was good to see everybody.
0: Always good to see you. Say hello to Deborah, please.
4: I will. Thank you. Hi, Michael. Hi, John. Hi, everybody. Uh, one important question. Uh, Tom, what time is it over there? <laughs> uh, two, quarter to three. <laughs> That's right <laughs> effort. Right effort,
5: Tom. Very good. <laughs> Very good job. <laughs> it's quarter to three in the afternoon.
3: In
5: the <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's why, I, that's why I, I stopped coming in the the tuesday evening ones you did because they were when i was in the philippines that was well now i'm in the uk that would be in the middle of the morning so oh I don't okay quite, i don't quite have enough effort to, to attend the
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're I, don't, I don't think i would <laughs> either
5: <laughs>
4: anyhow um i heard uh there's some uh just like uh, becky had brought up some points and, and john actually uh you reiterated uh uh, this whole idea of um, you know time and like uh, like Bahia uh, was worried about his time running out, you know, and uh, uh, we're we're concerned with with aging, you know. Uh, many years ago, uh, I'm sure most of you guys are familiar. Maybe the younger uh, um, individuals here might not be familiar with the Moody Blues. But the Moody Blues, the Moody Blues had a uh, yeah. See Becky, Becky. Now okay, this is. Nights in white Whiteside. Nights in white Whiteside. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. But uh, the, uh, the song which uh, uh, probably maybe uh, you guys aren't so familiar with is a song called 22,000 Days, oh. which is a uh, which is a song. Uh, and it's, it basically goes, 22,000 days, it's not a lot, it's all we got. So this time feel the flow and get it right. Okay. So that 22,000 days is a human life. Well, if you divide that by years, it comes out to about 60 years. Okay. So we're actually, uh, you know, a lot of us are past that 60 years. So we've made it this far. But obviously, the whole idea is like, uh, uh, you know, if we want to concern ourselves with that, my point is going to be this is that like, if we concern ourselves, like, you know, with the fact that we don't have that much time left, but he uh, concerned himself with he didn't have t- that much time left. John, you know you're the most fantastic teacher in the whole wide world, but you concern yourself about the lack of time, or you're you're always pointing towards like not being here, and none of us want to think that way that you'll not that you won't be here to to masterfully uh, masterfully lead us, you know, uh, you know, uh, down this uh, the eightfold path. While we'll saying so,
0: well, you better uh, prepare yourself. <laughs>
4: well. <laughs> There you go. There you go. You're still on it. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> so see, the thing is this, is when we concern ourselves with how much time we have left or where we where we want to be or uh, what we have to do or whatever it is, uh, with the preoccupation, the preoccupation that you mentioned, and I think that's your word that you put in there, John, so skillfully, given us such a, even a greater, a deeper understanding of this sutta that preoccupation is that us is, is that's us fabricating that's us fabricating be caught up in the fabrication of not being present and when we're not present and when we're putting our minds in the future and say well i you know what i don't know how long i'm going to live for i should know how long well, you know I who the heck knows how long i have to live for i've had some uh, things going on with me you know but um uh, when we When we take ourselves out of this moment and, uh, when, when, when putting create, you know, fabricating is not right effort because we're not having right effort in the moment and living a full, you know, a full human life. We're compromising our, the human life that we have by taking ourselves by fabricating and putting ourselves somewhere else. So if we want to enjoy this life and live it fully, we'll stay here in, in the present and we'll, We'll uh, en- enjoy the time we have, no matter if it's one day or f- 55 years. Who knows? That's all I want to say.
0: Beautifully said, Michael. Thank you. Good morning, Julia.
6: Good morning, everybody. Good morning, John. Um, I have notes everywhere, so I'm going to try to put them together. Let's see if they sound good. <laughs> um, when, oh, this sutta, to me, uh, screams uh, the, you know, the three defilements. um <laughs> Greed, aversion, and diluted thinking. Yep. I kept, I kept on hearing it repeated over and over again, um, and the thing that that really uh, stood out was the fact that even immediate gratification is disappointing because uh, we're going to cling to the thing very tightly, but right, right, right there, with that clinging is the aversion of losing it, and so if those two things they kind of go together. I never realized that it was so cl- like they were so united. It, it, it's you know the greed of wanting it and 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 the and the aversion of losing it is so strong they go they're they're, yeah. they're, they're melded together and of course of course that creates you know further deluded thinking and and an ignorant mind um so uh, unless let's see unless uh, we can establish wise restraint at the point of contact we will cling crave become further ignorant and further a deluded mind and ignorance fabrications conscious which continues our karma so uh, we just continue it, 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 the whole process of dependent origination the whole wheel just keeps on on rolling and until yeah. we can put a break in here um, there's one little thing one line here yeah. that um, I think that you wrote this John where you, you said a mind lacking jhana concentration cannot cannot support refined mindfulness developed yeah. through the Eightfold Path so we need we need to have a mind in concentration a mind uh, in Jhana to have this wise restraint at point of contact. Otherwise, we can't stop the process. We will That's continue. It. We will continue to to have greed aversion and continue diluted diluted uh, thinking. The other the other thing that this reminded me of is the um, suttas on um, emptiness again. I I don't know. I yeah. just keep on seeing all things relate back to that. Yeah. That there's really there's really nothing here, nothing in this phenomenal world that can be used to maintain a permanent self. Nothing. So uh it's best that we say this is not me this is not mine that's this is not who i am and th- that's it that's it I, I don't know if i connected all the pieces
0: together my yes. notes but that's- you, you, you certainly <laughs> no. did julia because the, the Dhamma does come back come come down to that recognizing that what's arising in this moment is not me mine or any has anything to do with me it's just what's occurring so. thanks julia yeah, thank so, you, John. good morning josh
7: Good morning, everybody. Thank you, John. Well, you know, my, my concept of myself has been built all these years through my senses. And, uh, The Buddha was smart enough to realize that, that we humans have gotten ourselves into a, an impossible situation because our senses causes our suffering. And so we have to go it's about good, deconstructing yeah. our our senses in order to, to, to get rid of our suffering. And, and uh, this... Uh, I got to kind of chuckling about my vision of myself. You know, I've, I I often I go around the day thinking I'm look, young and handsome like Rom, until I look, <laughs> until I, look the, I look in the mirror and I see this old guy looking back, and I and I realize that I go I'll have a lot of deluded thinking about myself. Just uh, and I I guess the uh, my AA days have taught me one definition of humility is to see things as they really are. Mm -hmm. And the thing that is helping me to see things as they really are, are your classes, John. And uh, Mm -hmm. more than anything else I've ever experienced. And uh, uh, because life is a fight to see things as they really are and not through a Fabrication or diluted yeah. setup that
0: we we've been given. So, thank you. Thank you, Josh. You almost you almost bring me to tears here. The um, seeing things as they really are is another way of saying going from ignorance to true understanding. You know, true knowledge of what it means to be a human being. That's all the Buddha teaches. Thank you. Good afternoon, Tom.
5: Good afternoon, John. Um, yeah, and as Josh said, I also look in the mirror and wish I looked like rum. But, uh, <laughs> actually, I'm okay. is, is anybody
0: going to say they look in the mirror and wish they looked like me?
5: <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, no, um, really, uh, yeah, really, really enjoyed, especially enjoyed teachings today. I, 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 um, I, the, the wonderful thing about the, the Dharma is that every single time, i've had i've joined the class and i've opened myself to this teaching there's so much relevance to my life i've never i've never once joined a session and felt well that doesn't apply to my life today or i don't have any you know there's no need to pay much attention as long as i am attentive um there's so much value there And, uh, and i have on a more serious note really done a lot of i'm i'm about to turn sort of the big four zero quite soon relatively soon and um I'm going, I'm doing a lot of that, like thinking, oh, well, I wish I was 25, you know, or if I know I was 30 or all of those thoughts are coming up a lot at the moment. And so it's, uh, it's nice to be able to talk about it and hear yeah, um, everyone's perspectives and the Dharma's perspective. Um, I, I just had uh, I had two questions, actually, but one of them, I think, can be reserved for another time because it's a, it's a bigger issue. Um, but I'm, as I sort of talk to my friends um, across the pond, you know about um, the sort of the clarity I've got this year, thanks to this sangha. People will always ask me, you know, well, how do you know? How do you know it's the right suitors, or how how do you choose, or how does John choose the suitors to restore, and all of this, sort this of stuff. So I don't I don't expect you to answer that question now, but I was just wondering if there is a talk out there where you, um, or is there any information there, like further information on exactly. How the process you went through in restoring the suitors, um, and, you know, and, and how you did, you know, why those 300 suitors and not 400 different ones, or, 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 you know, so why, what, that, knowing a bit more about that process would be really interesting. And I don't know if it's something to be covered in a future talk at some point, or if there's spoken about it, then I can just dig out the recording and, um, and, and listen.
0: Yeah, let me, happens, one let, me, let me answer that, um, and then I want to hear your second question. The, um, <clears throat> on the website, there's and they're all linked on the homepage, is, is a talk and article on the formation of the Sutta Pataka in, in the Pali Canon. There's articles on, in that, I think in that same dropdown, on modern Buddhism with thicket of Views, and a few other ones in there will explain the process that I went through. My own uh, biography goes in detail on this. And the, the welcome introduction page explains in detail why. Then as far as choosing the suttas, many of the original sources that I used, primarily from Tanisara Bhikkhu, but also Bhikkhu Bodhi, Maurice Walsh, uh, Sister Kemma, a few others, um, they almost always... Um, put in their footnotes a relevant sutta or tens of relevant suttas and so I just kind of followed that trail and um, as my teaching developed and as the sangha developed I went from and the our sangha would recognize this more in the last couple of years from teaching more or less individual suttas and kind of where I felt the sangha was ready to hear Um, uh, and that's, that's what would determine what I taught. So in the last few years, doing more of these structured studies, meaning put the same concept and context together in a series of talks. So, uh, and then I think your, your friends were questioning why, where did I pick the suttas? Um, that explains the why, but the important thing to me is the where I only took, I only restored and I only teach the suttas that I know can be directly related back to what the Buddha taught, meaning the Sutta Pitaka. And it was only then that it began to make sense. In other words, I don't teach anything from any modern sutta, meaning modern could go back to, to the time of Dogen, meaning that the Heart Sutra, the Lotus Sutra, the Diamond Sutra, the Platform Sutra, and there's a few others. But primarily, modern Buddhism is based on those sutras rather than what the Buddha taught. So that's how I keep it. That's how I I choose the suttas and how I keep it pure. And I think it's why you find every session effective, because they're simply practical. I very, 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 maybe three times in 10 years, over a thousand classes, taught a sutta or taught a class that wasn't directly related to a sutta. And I decided that many, many years ago, uh, that if I was going to, and this was when I was first starting out, that if I was going to teach something it first had to be useful in a way that I knew could relate to the Buddha's Dharma, which meant that I should only be teaching uh, teaching from a sutta. And that kind of got me restoring the suttas in, into a more, I wish I had recordings from my very earliest classes because I'd like to listen to them because I used to teach the suttas as I found them, even though as I was teaching, I'm saying, wait a minute, I can't even explain this. How could I be teaching it? And that's what motivated me to restore them to the context of what the Buddha awakened to and what he first taught as Four Noble Truth. So there's the answer.
5: <laughs> all right, thank you. Thank you. I'll, I'll do some more research on the website.
0: Yeah, there, it's, a, it's a bit of reading, but it's all on there.
5: Yeah, yeah. Um, great. And just my second question, which again, you can feel free to answer next week. I know we're running out of time. So it, it, it was just more along we were talking earlier about right effort. And um, uh, I'm personally, I'm a big planner. So I like to, and planning has um, obviously I, I know it's got lots of pitfalls to it, um, and it's caused lots of suffering. I'm sure, but I also know, knowing me personally, I know like if I have a plan, then I'm more disciplined and I'm more I'm more likely to follow through on something, even something which is wholesome, right? Um, and so I, I wanted to get your thoughts um, either today or on. On that balance between, um, you know, what is the role do you think of planning in in the Buddhist path? Yeah, um, and can it play a useful role, um, or should mm. I literally just wake up every morning and be like, no, I'm just going to live the day and focus on whatever I can on that day? Or is there a is there room for for planning or strategic? thinking, if you like, in, in, yep.
0: in, in any way. It's both of those things. It's making your plans and waking up each day and being content whether your plans roll out the way you expected them. So, and that all has to do with an understanding of the three marks too, doesn't it? That I can make I can make my plans for tomorrow, but if I don't allow for the impermanence, then I'm, I'm setting myself up for being disappointed. In other words... Um, I had a doctor's appointment. This is, I think this is a good example. I had a doctor's appointment yesterday. And so I had to make a plan a while ago for that doctor's appointment, didn't I? Which I did. It was a practical, practical and reasonable thing to do, knowing at some point in the future, I got to go to the doctor and have this looked at. So I made the plan. But when the snow came, that was the end of the plan. So I, wasn't, I, I didn't have to react to it. I didn't become distraught. I simply made a phone call and made another plan. And so we we live in a in in a world of ever changing phenomena that does require some planning, but also the understanding to not take any of those plans personal and to allow for things to change. So I hope that answers your question.
1: Can I say something, John?
0: Yes, please. Um, I just as so I completely identify with
1: feeling like a planner, and I I really have asked myself the same question. And I think John's answer just now, um, really lays out sort of the beginning of how to enter into using like the middle way when it comes to planning, because um, as you start to develop your practice and you look at your tendency to plan, you start to recognize, where your eye making is around planting, planning, planning. Um, and what you're adding to a plan that you don't, that that isn't um, right view, or that maybe is yeah. you know getting attached to an expectation, um, seeing how you may be telling yourself that the plan needs to unfold in a particular way and that that is going to, you know, make you happier somehow, which is also not true, Um, not in right view. And also you may recognize, at least I have recognized that sometimes a planning tendency will come up when it's not appropriate. You may (laughs) try to be planning something while you're driving or you're trying to plan something while you're, you know, doing the dishes. And if you recognize that you're doing that, then that's a time where you can be saying to yourself, okay, I'm not sitting at my desk and with my schedule, and making a plan right now. Right now I'm driving. Right now I'm I'm doing the dishes. Let me put this planning away for right now, because it's a time to yeah. that I'm where
3: I'm not actually planning. So I just wanted to kind of
1: elaborate
0: on that a little bit. Uh, great, John. Thank you. And there's another aspect of things that we might call planning that are really just deeply diluted thinking. And I was thinking of one for myself in my um deeply diluted days when there was a lot of alcohol and drugs running through my vein. I just had this memory. Um, I used to plan to buy a lottery ticket tomorrow. But in my mind, I was really nuts because I came up with these six magic numbers. I knew, I planned on winning the lottery tomorrow. And I was always disappointed. But there was a huge distraction. And I couldn't, right now I can remember my mind state of the 24 hours from picking those six numbers. Out of nothing, deciding that I was going to win, and already spending the money over the next twenty-four hours, and where I was going to go. So that that was a plan to do something that I had an incredible amount of delusion attached to the plan. So it's, again, I was just throwing that out as an as an example of how we can we can get caught up in planning. So as our mind's quiet and we become more practical, our plans simply become more practical. So I haven't planned on winning the lottery. Uh, in quite a while. And I'm glad for it. But I do occasionally buy a lottery ticket just to see what happens. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Tim, how are you? Good to see you. haven't spoken in a little bit.
8: Yes, hi, John. Hope you're feeling better. I am,
0: thank Thank you. you. Um,
8: So, as, as always, when I read these suttas, I always look at the title and I really try to pay attention to what Buddha's saying. You know, the words. And this is, a, this is about Dukkha, and it reminds me of that the chapter in the Dhammapaga, the jagavaga about the, yeah. um, the three forms of Dukkha, uh, the three forms of stress or Dukkha, being you know, pain, fabrications, and change, and how Buddha basically just addressed all three forms of Dukkha here um uh, change meaning our age as we age yep. as impermanence becomes more obvious to us <laughs> there's less time in front of us than behind yeah. us um but the word in the very beginning of this sutta in regards to sensual, sensuality is interpreted interpretation our self-referential, my self-referential self, interprets the smells, the tastes, all those essential things. Those it's not the senses that are causing the dukkha; it's the interpretation, the self, right. the, the the non-self,
6: I should say. Yeah.
8: How it interprets these things and then craves those things, and clings to those things, and like, I, I like Julia. I have tons of notes, so I'm not going to go over all of but I, I wanted to highlight ones, you know. And the we all know through our teachings, through the truth of happiness, that the self-referential, you know, clings for a purpose and craves recognition. And so, I think it's very, for me, it's always been a very interesting thing how Buddha focuses on the sens- the senses, whereas for me, I still. Don't see them as. Again, this is just me. I am not there where Buddha is. It, 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 my interpretation of the senses are different than others. I guess I don't. I, I don't. I don't get so enamored over them. Some people do. Some people have to have that watch. Some people have to have that best piece of best steak, the best cognac, all those things. And it, and those are the things that fortify the self. And this is what I'm getting out of this, because he's talking about dukkha here. He's talking about the things that make us dissatisfied, the thing that causes those, the pain. And again, yep. the Jagavaga clearly states those three forms pain, change, and the, what was the other one? Fabrications, the stress of fabrications. And I think that that's where this one's really kind of. Focusing on on the sensual sensuality part is that stress of fabrication. Mm -hmm. Is that being read properly
0: by myself? It is. I I would ask you, what what do we use to interpret what's occurring through our senses? Well, I would think that we would use conditioned thinking. Well, yeah, in in the uh, in the writing is to to make that a little bit more concise. We interpret what's occurring to our senses through that sixth sense of consciousness. And so the the basic teaching is is that if our consciousness is rooted in ignorance, we can't interpret things through our senses without fabricating that. If our consciousness is rooted in understanding and knowledge, then we interpret what's occurring through the world properly and without any self-reference. Yes. And so there's a lot in that one line, isn't there? Yes. So we have to understand, okay, what am I interpreting this through? where every human being interprets what's occurring in the world through what they have, what they're made of, their thinking process. And I don't want to, we we really have a long class, but that is, that's the, um, that's the fine point of that sutta, isn't it? That it all comes down to the quality of my mind. You can say it all comes down to that fourth foundation of mindfulness as well. Thank you, Tim, for bringing that up.
8: One last thing, I know I'm I'm talking fast. That being said, that accumulates into this idea of control and this dichotomy of control that I've always felt very important for the Dhamma in the self wanting to control things that we can't control, the non-self. you know, And things like aging, we cannot control. We cannot control yep. that, that, that train of time. All
0: those things the Buddha lists as dukkha. We have no control right. over. So what can we control, though?
8: Well, we can control the fact that they eightfold path, the, the quality yep. of our mind, the state of our mind, yep. and how and how we how we re, how how we live are the virtuous factors. Those are the, all the things we can control, yep. and, and we can control not losing our our mind. So, so uh-huh. this this was an, an incredible. Um, Sutta and bringing a lot of those chapters from the Dhammapada and Truth of
0: Happiness yes. kind of together in one in one in one teaching. So thank you very much. Thank you, Tim, for that. And for I mean, it's re, it's not remarkable, it's profound that you're able to see that. See the, the, the correlation, whatever the right word is, of the Dhammapada in this sutta, in these and these sutras on dukkha. Because it's all dealing with the same thing. Someone mentioned emptiness before. I think Jen. Again, the, the sutras on dukkha follow emptiness because it's still the basic teaching of emptying ourselves of ignorance so that our consciousness is, is, is interpreting what's occurring through understanding and knowledge. So, thank you. Uh, I think Kevin is the last one. Sorry to make you last, Kevin, but I'm glad you're here today. I think we
1: haven't heard from Anthony
0: either, have we? Yeah, We did. How are you, Kevin?
5: Hi, how are you doing?
0: I'm good. How are um, you?
5: Very good. Um, I'll just... I had a lot lot of notes, too, and a lot of things, but um, it's just been so well covered by everyone here. And in the sutta, um, the Buddha refers, and his disciples refer to skilled disciples, and it's wonderful to be surrounded by so many skilled (laughs) disciples. Such wonderful... Um, it just opens up things for for me and for all of us Um, and then um, just to say John you had presented this uh, sutta years ago on a Thursday night and uh, then it was so over my head so almost overwhelming but with the years of teaching and with 200 suttas later it just is so clear now and I thank you for that and you are our most skilled Disciple, and really our own personal tattatatt.
2: So
0: thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Kevin. The uh, uh, and you're just such a good example of something we talked about earlier. How important repetition is, because I'm sure this was way over your head a few years ago, and now it's it's a very practical and useful teaching, isn't it? The you said know, That's exactly what I discovered as I stayed with the sutras. You know, just changed everything. Um, is there anyone I didn't get to? And I do apologize, probably not the right word, but I, I acknowledge that it's a rather long class. I, I appreciate you all staying with me, uh, but an important class too. So I want to thank you all for joining today. But also, again, uh, thank you for all your, your, your care and support over the last couple months. It really has meant a lot to me. I have I've, I've not overlooked any of it. So uh, thank you. I just want to remind those of you that don't know, we have a, uh, a new class that meets on Thursday afternoons at two o'clock, and please join us. And it's time to go. Have a wonderful weekend. Stay warm and safe.
8: Bye, John. Thanks for a great class. Bye-bye. Thank you, John.
0: Thank you for listening.